Well, we're not going to continue in Romans today. We're going to be in Psalm 24 um, so that Gunnar can stay on track with his Romans study. Um, I do uh, want to, I really appreciate Gunnar asking me to uh, preach this morning. Uh, Beth and I have thoroughly enjoyed being here at Valley so far. We love this place. Um, we love finding a family to be able to worship with. And um, I was uh, really honored when Gunnar called me this week and asked me to fill in. Um, psalm 24 is where we're going to be looking at. And this psalm just follows on with what we were worshiping God with and the words that we were using this morning and just how great God is. We all look a lot at Psalm 23. That's a passage that most of us have heard at some point in our life about how the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. But if we read on into Psalm 24, we see another great psalm that David wrote that really leads us to think about God and think about how great he is and what he can do for us in our life. So I hope that we can do that a little bit this morning. Psalm 24 says this. It starts with the king of glory entering Zion, and it says a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob. Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Selah. Let's ask the Lord's blessing upon his word again. Lord, we thank you. We praise you this morning. And we ask that as we look at this psalm of praise, that you would help us to be able to worship you even more with our life and with our hearts and be more thankful for the relationship that we can have with you. For it's in Christ's name. Amen. Um, before we get into this, I want you to look at, um, turn over to 2 Samuel 6, because that's really where this psalm, the story takes place at, according to most historians. Now, before I get into that, Friday, Friday morning, so I'm a chaplain and I, I get to go to a lot of events, so on Friday, we did a change of command for one of the commands I covered down at Imperial Beach, uh, actually on Coronado. And so at these events, you have admirals and captains. And this was a big one. So there were like four admirals there. And within a few hours of the event, I'm looking on Facebook and, and, and to just to look at the pictures and stuff of the event. And there's this, this, these, these pictures on Facebook and that the uh, public affairs officer put out. And I'm looking at them. And so there's... Admiral number one, he's a three-star admiral. He's up on stage in all of his fancy uniform with all his lots of medals that I'll never earn. And then there's this other admiral, and he's a two-star admiral, and he's there too because, well, he's an admiral, and that's what they do. They go where they want. And then there's the captain who's changing command, and then the new captain coming in behind him. And so they're big and powerful, and they, can, they command a thousand or more sailors and all this. And then there's one other guy up there on the stage, and it's little old me and just a lieutenant and uh you know i don't have all those medals and i haven't been doing this as long and you know what i had no right to be up there on that stage because i wasn't an admiral and i wasn't a captain and i wasn't changing command and all the other lieutenants were out there in the audience watching 
what was going on on stage, but I got to be up there on stage. Why? Because did I deserve it? No. The only reason I was up there, and you'll see how it ties into this psalm, is because of my relationship with that captain. And because he asked me to do his prayer for him for that change of command so that I got to sit up on stage. But that was the only reason. It wasn't because I deserved to be there. It wasn't because I had earned it by, by my longevity in the Navy and all of my great experiences. It wasn't because of anything but my relationship with that one guy that sat up on that stage. And in our relationship with God, what we're going to see in this passage is that ultimately it's all about God. And it's all about what he has done for us. And it's all about his sovereignty and his power and his authority in our lives. But when, and so David has written this psalm and to show God's power and authority. But most scholars, when you read about the background of this psalm, they believe that it was probably and could have been written as, like, as a praise psalm to go with the bringing of the... Um, of the Ark of the Covenant back into the tabernacle that was up at Jerusalem at that time. Now, if you remember, the Ark of the Covenant was where the presence of God dwelled for the people of Israel. They didn't have the Holy Spirit inside of them like we do today. That wasn't until the book of Acts when the church started and then the, the, the Holy Spirit now comes into us. And once we accept Christ, we get the Holy Spirit. But at that time, the presence of God literally was found in the Ark of the Covenant that stayed in the tabernacle. But they would also take this Ark of the Covenant with them out to war. And that's what had happened when we come to 2 Samuel 6. They'd, they'd taken the Ark of the Covenant out. It had not been brought to Jerusalem. It was still out. And David had commanded his men to bring the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. But then in the first part of chapter 6, something bad happens. Because remember, they had a lot of rules for what you could and couldn't do because this was God's presence and His holiness. And God had said, you don't touch the Ark of the Covenant. And so this man named Uzzah, as they were bringing it back, and they had not done it according to the way God had demanded them, had, had commanded them to do, and said, you carry it on poles and you do it this way. And so they had put it on an ox cart, it had started to fall, Uzzah reached out to steady it, and God struck Uzzah dead because he had failed to follow through on God's holiness and on the commands. And of course, David gets angry about it, and, and, and the people get angry, and so they get scared. And what do they do? They leave the Ark of the Covenant sitting at this man's house named uh, the Gittite, named Obed-Edom. And so that's where we find the Ark of the Covenant in chapter 6. Well, then David realizes, hey, this is not the right thing. The Ark of the Covenant needs to be brought into the tabernacle so we can worship God and have the presence of God with us. And so then we come to verse 12, and it said, Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God. David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And so it was that when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. And David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of the trumpet. Then it happened as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David that Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. So they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent, which David had pitched for it. 
And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Now, why do we read that passage in relation to Psalm 24? Because most people believe that historically David probably wrote that psalm as the, the, the worship song they were singing as he brought it into Jerusalem. We don't have a ton of proof to base that on, but there's a very good possibility because of the wording in the psalm that it was based around the Ark of the Covenant. And so... If you can think about that, this is a time of joy. This is a time of just the people are so happy to be able to have the presence of God coming back into Jerusalem. And they're singing as a choir this praise to God. And they're also, Psalm 24 fits in the way it's laid out in, in the stage of here's God and his presence and it's moving and then finally it ends with and there we're ascending up into bringing his presence into us and the gates are opening and we're bringing the Ark of the Covenant now into Jerusalem. So that's kind of the stage. That's what's going on as the as this is read. So what, what does this psalm say? Look at verses one and two, because this is where this is how David sets the foundation for Psalm 24. He says, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Everything else that happens in this psalm is based on one thing. And really, everything that happens to us is based on one thing. And that is that the context is the sovereignty of God. The fact that he is the creator, ruler, sustainer of everything around us, of everything that is in our world, of everything that we see, of everything that we have. He controls and rules it all. Um, there also seems to be in here that he is using this 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 sovereign theme of the sovereignty of God in the fact of saying that the earth is the Lord, everything around it. And then he goes on and he, he says two things specifically in verse 2. He says, he's founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Now, why does he pick this out? They're pretty powerful things, right? The oceans, the rivers. Um, you know, I got invited to do, I was asked to do a baptism. This was like three years ago. And um, <clears throat> when I was still stationed at Camp Pendleton, I had a Marine that I uh, discipled with and he wanted to be baptized. And um, he asked me to do it out at Oceanside Pier. Now, I don't know if you've ever been out at Oceanside Pier in the water there. And all around here, really, the water is just, the waves are really, really powerful. And I'm, I, we had come from Florida. I've done some stuff in the ocean. But Florida water, you know, where I'm from in South Carolina at Myrtle Beach, it's, it's nice and calm. And you don't get huge back toes that pull you out into the ocean for miles and, and can kill you like that. Um, and so I'm used to like doing baptisms or whatever in nice, easy, easy ocean water, not Oceanside. And, uh, so we go out there to do the baptism and all of a sudden I'm like, feel like I'm losing him and he's drowning and I'm drowning and it was horrible. Um, it was a good experience for him. I'm glad he was getting baptized. That's great. But it, <laughs> I was really afraid that we were both going to drown that day because I wasn't used to the power of those waves. Um, and I was reminded of it yesterday as we're, uh, Beth and I went up to, uh, Los Angeles just for a couple of days because I had a day off on Friday. And, um, and just going along there besides Camp Pendleton on the train and you're looking out and you saw all the waves and everything, the beautiful ocean, but it's so powerful. Well, the Canaanites, remember the Israelites, they're living in their promised land that God had given them, but they still had not completely conquered everything around them. So they had all of these false religions around them that were the Canaanite religions of that day. 
Two of their major gods they worshipped were the god of the rivers and the god of the oceans. Because in their minds, those were the most powerful things around them. What can a river do? A river can cut a Grand Canyon. A river can... Um, a, a river can move dirt and move, and it's, at that time, they didn't have, they didn't have cranes and things that could move dirt, but they watched rivers at work. They watched an ocean that could get, that could wipe away large ships. That, that was what power was to them. So in their minds, the gods, the, the, the Canaanites around them worshipped these gods of rivers and oceans and water. And so when David says, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Then he very specifically kind of puts a jab at the local religions around him and says, and guess what? He's also the God that created those rivers. He's the God that created those oceans. He's the God that your gods are powerless against because he found founded everything in this world on what you worship. And so that's, that's kind of the context here and that David is... On the one hand, reminding everyone of the sovereignty of God, but then also purposely kind of remember, this is probably thousands of people going up into Jerusalem at one time. David is kind of saying to the rest of the people around them, look, we serve the real, true, powerful God who you need to know about. So he goes on and he starts it with verses one or two. And then he 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 starts talking about. God entering into our presence. This whole passage is really about how we approach God, how we come to God and how God comes to us and how we can know him, even though he's this sovereign God of the universe who created everything. And so we come into verse three and it says, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. So the first question David asked here is, okay, here's this powerful God. And we have his presence with us as the people of Israel. This Ark of the Covenant where God himself dwells. And we're going to move it into our location. We're going to move it to be with us in this tabernacle. Who are we to have the right to do that? Who am I to be able to reach out to God. How can we enter into God's presence? And then he answers this question. He says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. Okay, think about it. That's who can enter God's presence. Now, how many of us in here can raise our hands and say, oh yeah, I got a pure heart, clean hands. I've never done anything dishonest. Never been deceitful and never spoken falsely to anyone. Wow, that's silence. That's right, none of us. We're all imperfect. We've all failed. The Bible says in Romans 3.23, for all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all failed to meet God's perfect holiness and standard. And if there was any question about it, David pretty well covers the entire gamut of anything we could possibly do or say that's wrong. He starts off with he who has clean hands. That's outward cleanliness. The Pharisees in the New Testament were really good at that. So people would look at them and say, wow, these, these guys are really holy. They, they know how to tithe down to the, the least little bit of, 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 of spice they bring into their house. These guys know how to quote the Bible backwards and forwards. They know how to say the right thing. They know how to do the right thing. They're per they look good on the outside. That's what having clean hands is all about. And David said, that's great. That's the place where you need to start at. 
What are your actions like? What, what do people see when they look at you? Do they see someone who acts like a Christian, who, 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 who lives out what they say they believe? But then he goes that next step because that's not really what true holiness is, is it? Remember, Jesus even himself took it a step further. He took the Ten Commandments and he said, not only don't commit adultery, but don't even lust because that's adultery. And then he said, don't just not murder, don't even hate because now you've committed murder in your heart. And so it's not just about the outward actions, it's about the inward actions. And so David here says, you, it's, it's having clean hands and having a pure heart on the inside. It's having a life that is pure from inside to outside. And then he, he, he even goes further and said, who hasn't lifted up your soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. Someone who has never given themselves over to anything that's wrong. Wow. We could never say that. Because all of us were born under the curse of sin that was started by Adam. And because of that, we're all born sinners. We're all born completely inadequate and unable to do it. This is the person that can enter into God's presence. Fortunately, the psalm doesn't end there because that would be a pretty bad place to end because you'd be left saying, okay, here's God's presence. I can't have anything to do with it. I'm not worthy. He's not worthy to come into me. I'm not worthy to go into him. But he goes on to verse 5 and he says, he, that person, shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. You see, here's the answer to it. Because when we enter God's presence through holiness that is inward and not just, and it, that is inward and not just outward, so it's a pure, total holiness, the fact of the matter is it's his holiness and not ours. There's nothing that we can do to be good enough to enter into God's presence. But because of the fact that he has saved us, and if we have accepted Jesus Christ, he has given, he has justified us. Just like Gunnar's been hitting over and over every week in Romans. The fact that we have been declared not guilty. That God has taken a guilty sinner and said, because of what Christ did on the cross, I declare you not guilty for any of what you've actually done. Therefore, we can enter into God's presence. Look at Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, um, we've already covered this, but in verse 21, uh, going down to verse 20 and 21, Paul is speaking here and he says, The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life. Through who? Not through me. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so when we have this relationship with Jesus Christ, we do have pure hands, a clean heart, and a pure, pure heart and a clean hands. But it's not because of our doing. It's because of His doing. And so we have the blessing that we've received from the Lord, and we have righteousness from the God of our salvation. And so what is this ultimately based on? What is that holiness based on? It's not based on us. It's based on him. And it's based on our relationship. In verse 6 it says, This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob. Now, obviously in this passage, who is David 
speaking to? Who's this congregation? It's the Israelites. They're out there, they're, they're, they're worshiping God, but they're speaking to each other. And you can imagine David getting out there as the king and saying, this is the generation, you're the generation that is seeking God. It's you, Jacob, who are seeking God's face. Jacob used for the entire term of all of Israel. But does this then apply to us? Absolutely it does. I want to look at a couple of verses. Romans chapter 9, verse 6. Romans chapter 9. We haven't gotten there yet in our study of Romans, but we will. And in uh, Romans 9, 6, just to look a little ahead at what we're going to look at in, in a few weeks from now with Gunner, it says in Romans 9, 6, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are regarded as descendants. And then I want to look at one other verse in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. And this, Paul, it's Paul speaking again, and he says basically the same thing, but he clarifies it more, and he says... In verse 29 of chapter 3 in Galatians, he says, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. What is he saying in those two passages? He's saying, as a believer in Christ, first of all, he's saying, to in Romans, he's talking to the Israelites who said, Hey, I'm, I'm good. I'm one of God's chosen people. And his answer to them is, Well, yes, you're God's chosen people, but unless you know Jesus Christ, you're not actually of Israel, not the Israel that's going to come into my presence in heaven. Because it's not based on your genetics, it's based on your relationship with Christ and being righteous through Christ. And then in Galatians, he says, you, even though you're not of Israel, you're not an Israeli, you're not Jewish, even though you're a Gentile, if you know Christ, you are one of God's chosen people. And so you are included in those promises. You are included in those blessings. You are one of God's people. And so when he says here in in verse 6 of Psalm 24, this is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, even Jacob, you're included spiritually in Jacob because you are one of his people. And that's how he ends this section. You see, it's very nice here. We have it very easily broken down by these two little words called sila. We have no idea what they really mean. They're probably a musical term or something. But it makes a clear break between this section where he's talking about how we enter God's presence through holiness. That is not not just inward, but outward. It's It's not our holiness, but it's his. And it's all based on our relationship with Jesus Christ. And then he's going to go into God coming into our presence in this last part. You know, but as we think about God coming into our presence and it's based on relationship, you know, for us, it's a lot in the same way as you become an American citizen here. Now, for those, most of us here, we were probably born in the United States, which means we automatically have citizenship. But for those who were born somewhere else and they've gained citizenship here in the United States, many times there's even more of an appreciation for it because they understand what it took to become that citizen. 
I've had the privilege, um, when we would be out at sea uh, on the carrier, we, we did a lot of very large ceremonies for uh, citizenship. And they'd go through the uh, citizenship process while they were out at sea. And when we pull into ports, they work with the uh, State Department uh, at the various um, embassies there. And we'd set up ceremonies. And, and I watched a couple of naturalization ceremonies and had the privilege to be there. And... Um, when 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 those sailors would raise their hands and and say the oath of allegiance to the United States, what would immediately happen? Every right, every privilege that I had as an American citizen being born in this country. Guess what? Immediately when they did that, they got every single right that I ever had. Because they took an oath and became an American citizen. It wasn't gradual. It wasn't it wasn't just it, it wasn't given to them piecemeal. Every privilege you and I have as a citizen then becomes that person's as a citizen of the United States. And every right and privilege that, the Jew, that a Jew would have being born as a, a person, a chosen one of God, of one of his chosen people in the Old Testament, you have the moment you accept Jesus Christ. And that means his holiness. That means the ability for, to, 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 to come into the presence of God as what we see happening here. So therefore they had the right to go up to the, the, um, to go up to the Ark of the Covenant and then to bring it into the city. But now David turns the focus to God coming into the city. In verse 7 he says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Now, I want you to notice one word that's used, over, that's used a lot in that passage. And that one word is king. Once again, it's God's sovereignty at the focus of this passage. Now, when we think of a king in our modern terms, we don't really have anything to compare what they thought of a king to. You know, what's the closest we can probably come up with? Britain? I mean, they have a monarchy. But is it really... a it's a constitutional monarchy. The, the queen doesn't really have a lot of power. She can't go out there and direct her armies and, and do all this other stuff. She has some power, but it, it's, pretty, it's pretty moderated by their constitution. Um, it's symbolic. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of other countries. We've had some dictatorships in the last several hundred years that have been pretty monarchy-like. But in this day and age, when they said king, their mind was in a king who literally owned everything. The king was gracious enough to give back some of that land to you peasant people out there who were his, his, his subjects. You know, that, that's the kind of monarch that they were, an all-powerful ruler. But yet, in, in, uh, and so it's hard for us to kind of think about this, but when they use the term king, they're literally using the term of an absolute ruler. One who is is owns everything and has the right to everything and can ask anything. And so when God comes into our presence, we get to experience him personally, but we see him as a king, as lord, as ruler, as master, as owner. And so his sovereignty is there and when we accept him as our lord and savior, he is our king. And that's how he comes into our presence. Um it, on a on a historical point, what is probably happening at this point, if you want to keep the picture of they're bringing the 
Ark of the Covenant out. And, you, and as we read there, they stopped and they would do sacrifices along the way. Well, at this point, I haven't been to Israel, but I know a lot of you, uh, several of you have actually gotten to go with Gunner and other stuff. And, and as you enter into Jerusalem, you don't go down. You literally go up. And so it, when the temple finally did get built, it was even the highest point. And that was where, and so Jerusalem is up, and they're ascending up into that area. And at this point, when they get to these last verses, there's probably choirs on either side, and they're singing this back to each other. And so you might have a choir on this side who's singing, who is this king of glory? And then an answering choir in an antiphony of, of praise that would be, that would say, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. And so all of these choirs and praise and worship and what, and the Bible says David's out there dancing before the Lord. It's a very joyous occasion. And then they, they, they're walking up to Jerusalem, bringing the Ark of the Covenant to the gates. Now, there was no, there's some argument over, okay, well, are these the gates to the temple? Um, are these figurative? Are they literal? Um, there was no temple at this time, so it can't be the temple gates. That wasn't built until Solomon's time. Um, there was a tabernacle inside Jerusalem where they're heading to, but the, the city of Jerusalem did have gates on it. And so most likely this would have been said right before they get into the gates of the city um, that would then open up uh, so they could take him in. So they could take the Ark of the Covenant into the city there. So that's kind of the picture that's happening here. There's two things I want you to see here is that this is God entering into their presence, literally into the city. But it's not under it's not because they're carrying the Ark of the Covenant that he's entering in. The power that he enters into the city by is his own. Why do I say that? Look at verse 7 and 9. It says, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And verse 9 says the same thing. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors. Now, if you're going into a house or something like that, what would you naturally, if you knew somebody was on the other side, wouldn't you naturally say, hey, oh, if you're carrying something in, wouldn't the natural way to word it would be, uh, go open up that gate for us so we can walk in? Or, or you know, something to that effect. Instead, here David says, he, if you, in, the, in the Hebrew, it, it's, it's, it's as if they're doing the opening themselves. There's no one else opening those doors. And so it's the power of God that they open to him, um, li, uh, figuratively here in this, in this passage. And so... The power that opens those gates is not our power. It's not the power of some people on either side running them up. It's God's power. And David is saying, as the Ark of the Covenant comes through, it's literally saying, be lifted up to the presence of God. And so when God comes into our life, it's not because we've done it. It's because God's done it. I, you know, And I know a lot of you have probably seen the picture. And um, it's a nice picture to look at. And um, but it's not totally accurate. The picture of Jesus standing at the door knocking and every and as a kid growing up, it was always pointed out to me. And look, there's no doorknob on that door on the outside because you have to open it up from the inside and let Jesus into your life. That's not a sovereign God. A sovereign God enters where he enters. He chooses us. He chose us. He is sovereign over us. And he goes where he wants. And so when we enter into God's presence, it's because 
He allows us to come into his presence and he stoops to come into our presence. Because we have accepted him and because we have accepted his son, Jesus Christ. He is the sovereign one. We're not. His power is his own and his power is all encompassing. Look at verses eight and ten. And they're slightly different for a very good reason. It says, who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. What does it mean to be have glory? It's honor. It's distinction. And typically on this earth, how do we give glory? We give it based on something, right? If I come up here and you don't know who I am at all, and I just come up here and say, you know what? I'm a good person and you should all honor me. Is that the way we give honor to people? No, you would never do that. If somebody just walked into your business tomorrow and or Tuesday when you go back to work and said, yes, you need to all honor me and, 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 and pay me due respect and, and give me a paycheck. You're not going to do that. It's based on something. Tomorrow when we pay honor to those on Memorial Day, we don't do it just simply because they lived and died. We do it because of something they did. They earned that respect. They earned that honor. And therefore, we're going to go and pay, have ceremonies and everything in honor of what they did, of what they accomplished, of what their life meant. With God, we give him glory and honor and we call him the king of glory based on who he is. And he didn't have to earn our glory. He did it when he created us. When he created the world, when he created everything around us, he is worthy of the honor and the glory. And it doesn't matter if we consent to it or not. He is still worthy of that glory. Look at Romans 1. Romans chapter 1. I know I keep coming back to the passages Gunnar has preached on already. Romans chapter 1. And in Romans chapter 1, if you look down to verse, um, verse 20. It says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculation and their foolish heart was darkened. It doesn't matter if you recognize God as the king of glory or not. He is. And unlike a person walking into your presence and saying, you owe me honor. When God comes and says, I'm the king and I'm the I'm and I am the one who you should worship. He earned it. Based on the fact that he is God who created everything and created us. Whether we recognize it or not. And then we have other words there, strong and mighty. Obviously, that's all powerful that God can do anything. And he puts this in heroic terms. He says that God is mighty in battle. Now, um, remember I said they had taken the Ark of the Covenant out and they used it to lead them in battle. And that was probably why it was outside of the city in the first place. And they would actually take the Ark of the Covenant out there so that God's presence would literally be with them on the battlefield. They did this all the way up until the time of Josiah. And then after that, they, they started leaving it in Jerusalem, according to the scriptures. So... 
Um, but all this time, they would literally have God's presence with them on the battlefield whenever they would go into war. And as, as a reminder that we don't do this in our own strength. In fact, if you think back to the history of the Jewish people as they came into the promised land, what always happened? Whenever they relied on their own strength, they failed. When they relied on God's strength and when they turned to him and they recognized that he was the one who was taking them into the land, they had great success. When, when, when they failed to look to God in the battle of Ai and, and um, Achan had, had sinned and stolen the things and then the next, what happened, the next battle, they said, oh, you know, we got this. We, we don't even need to talk to God about this one. Let's just go take out this next city and then all of a sudden they get routed and people die and, and, and they fail because they forgot to look to God and they didn't, they didn't look to the one who had brought them into that country in the first place. And so God is reminding them that, hey, he is the one who gives us strength. He is the one who allows us to do things. Now, spiritually, this can be more than just fighting in a physical war. Whatever battle we have in our life, our God is mighty to see us through it. Whether it's physical, whether it's mental, whether it's emotional, whether it's our families, whether whatever it is in our life, the Bible says that God is strong enough. To take us through it. He's strong enough to be there for us. Because he's the one who created us. He's the one who created the world. He's the one who knows what you're going through. And he can see you through it to the end. He's the strong and mighty. He's mighty in battle. But then the most important thing that we need to see in this passage. Is that term down at the bottom. Who is this king of glory in verse 10? The Lord of hosts. This word is also in the King James. It's also translated the Lord of hosts. Uh, In the NIV it's translated a little different. But. And the reason it's translated host is because there's just not a better way to translate it. The, the, uh, it, it um, hundreds When they were doing the original translation for the King James, they couldn't find a better way to translate it. But it means so much more than that. Originally, it had in mind the, the, a king. If you think to... Uh, Deborah actually gave me the, uh, an illustration this morning because I couldn't think of a good movie. But uh, at the end of Lord of the Rings... There's a, uh, a huge army, I think it's Lord of the Rings, and of, of green people that come. Is that right, Deborah? <laughs> yes, and they're all behind their ruler and this, this leader, and they're gathered in a massive formation to go and make war. And that's, that's literally what this word host has in mind, of a great leader with surrounded on either side by all of his armies, and they're going into war against the enemy, and the, he, he is in c- complete control and they're going to go in and take over and they can do whatever they want because of all his power. But it has so much more than that behind it. It's literally the term Yahweh Sabaoth. And it combines two really important terms. So the term Yahweh there, Lord, is the personal name for God. And, and that's really important in scripture. If you look back at Genesis, or sorry, Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 15. Exodus chapter 3, we'll start at verse 13, actually. He says, this is when Moses is coming to um, the burning bush. He sees a bush burning. Remember, he's been out in the desert, not really caring about anything, but taking care of sheep and not getting found out because he killed an Egyptian ruler. And so he's out in the backside of the desert, and all of a sudden he sees a bush burning, and it's God, and he's never talked to God face to face like this before. And he sees this bush, and in verse 13, Moses said to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's Yahweh. 
And he said, thus shall you say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. That's the personal name for God. God didn't just say to Moses, oh, tell them God said. He gave him a personal name and said, I am the one. And, and, and that, that literally is like, I've, I'm, I've been in the past, I am now, and I am in the future. I will always be there for you. In the New Testament, when Jesus um, makes statements like, I am the vine, I am the branch, uh, I, am the, I am the branch, you are the vine, I am the branch, uh, when he says, um, I am the way, the truth, the life, no man comes to the Father. You know what the uh, Jewish people heard when, every time he said that? Yahweh. Every time he said that, they were hearing him say, I am God. He wasn't put to death because he was a prophet. He wasn't put to get death because he was just another man out there who was a rabble rouser. He was put to death because he literally claimed to be God. And the way he did it was he repeated over and over this same statement of Yahweh, I am. And using the personal name of God to refer to himself. And so here in Psalm 24, in this final term that refers to God, he uses, he puts two words together, Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth. And the first one is God's personal name that means I care for you. I want a relationship with you because I give you my personal name. I care that much for you. But then the second term is Sabaoth. I'm in control of everything. I have mighty armies that I can call. I can do whatever I want because I am God and I created it and I own it. But I want a relationship with you. So I am Lord. I am Lord of hosts. I am Yahweh Sabaoth. He is the king of glory. What is he saying here then? Verses 8 through 10 is the culmination of what began in verses 1 and 2. You see, in verses 1 and 2, David starts off with God is sovereign over all of creation. Verses 8 and 10 brings it to a culmination in that now this God who created everything, who's over everything, who created everything we see around us, is now dwelling in the presence of his people. He came down from heaven to dwell among them, to be a part of them, to have a relationship with them. That's how much he cared about them. And isn't it comforting to know that our salvation, even though we could not be holy enough to reach him, even though we could not be perfect enough to have that relationship with him, that God in heaven, who was ruler and sustainer of everything, came down to be a part of us, to sovereignly inject himself into history, and that it's not based on our ability, but on the fact that God chose us and sustains us, and it's greater and more powerful than anything that we can do ourselves or that we're going through today. He will take care of it. He will see us through because he is the Lord of hosts and the mighty God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your all-powerful hand that guides us, that leads us, that even though we are undeserving of your love and your mercy that you have saved us according to your grace, and that you say that whoever will can call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Lord, we thank you that we can know you in a personal and loving way, and we can experience you every day as we go about the, the daily business of being a human down here on earth. We give you the praise and the honor and the glory. For it's in Jesus' name. Amen.